And I was sitting there being like the entrepreneurs that I admire and in our uh, tribe, what would our mug say? I was like, if we had our own mug, what would it be? It would be, I eat failure for breakfast. Right. So if, I, if, I, if I only fail four times by the time I get to lunch, that's actually a pretty good day on average. Friction is a huge psychological burden. Without friction, we would not have fire and we would not have sparks. I got to get a knife. <laughs> I gotta hide it. They end up spending a lot of time ruminating. Hi, I'm Bob Sutton. I'm an organizational psychologist and Stanford professor, and this is the Friction Podcast. On today's episode, we have Eric Reese. Eric is the author of The Lean Startup and The Startup Way. Eric has helped start a movement in government and corporations to bring the entrepreneurial mindset into large organizations. Eric is on a mission to add rigor to the way we think about innovation and product development. He wants to get companies to stop wasting people's time and money, to stop frustrating them, and to add as much humanity as possible into their daily lives. Let's start with just the word friction. When you hear the word organizational friction, uh, how might you define it? What are some of the emotions that come to mind? Well, it's just funny when you say organizational friction. I actually think there's in most organizations there's more friction than there is organization. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's like that's almost all there is because the overhead of getting anything done is unbelievable. I, I was talking to a product manager huh. and I said to him. What percentage of your time do you estimate do you spend defending your existing budget that you already uh-huh. have for your organization? He said at least 50%. And that's actually the most common answer I get from people. And, it, these, are, and these are probably in profitable, in highly profitable, well-run, highly, you know, well-managed organizations. So, so friction to me is like the natural automatic consequences of the way we structure these organizations when uh. they get to scale. And th- we just assume that that's how it is. It can't. It can't be improved on, which is so wrong. Well, so my take, and I, 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 I'm sitting to be corrected, is that you're making an argument for bringing um, an entrepreneurship mindset mm-hmm. into large organizations. Is that accurate? Sure. So, I mean, when you say that we're going to bring an entrepreneurial mindset into any organization, people immediately think you're full of crap. Right, it's like it's, it sounds so BS. You're like, oh great, what is that? What are we gonna do? We're gonna put up posters and say, everybody think more creative, be an entrepreneur, or whatever. Like, like, there's so much cliche and like business nonsense and fads that, that come around these ideas every few years, as uh-huh. you well know. But I think when what we have to be like, just more rigorous about our terms and about what it means okay. because the details of this really matter. So, when we talk about entrepreneurship as a corporate capability, yep, that. I think is the place to begin. When I meet CEOs and I ask them who in this organization is responsible for the following things, uh, creating brand new products that could have disruptive potential, mm-hmm. commercializing research that's happening in your labs, taking existing products to radically new markets, uh, building brand new uh, internal procedures and IT systems and whatever. I give them a list of things. Uh-huh. Like if I'm really lucky and it's a very well-run company, there'll be a couple of those things will be somebody's like part-time job. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I say, well, who's responsible for making sure that like we do innovation in this company the right way? They generally will tell me that that's everybody's job. Everyone in this company is supposed to think in an innovative way. Everyone's supposed to be an You're entrepreneur. Supposed to be innovative at your desk every second. Every day. Everyone's supposed to be in it. And I'm like, oh, that's great. Why don't we just apply that same standard to marketing? 
we don't need a chief marketing officer and a, and a marketing department. Everyone can be in charge of marketing. That'll be fine. And people look at me like, that's not going to work. Like, obviously, that's not going to work. And I'm like, well, let's do it with finance. <laughs> we don't need a chief financial officer. Everyone in the company is responsible for finance. It's going to be fine. You know what? I have an idea. Let's create a finance lab. <laughs> Let's have all the finance people like get beanbag chairs and whatever the finance, I don't know, accountants probably think like foosball is not as cool. Right. As whatever, whatever fun thing, we'll just put them in a lab in a different city somewhere else far away from headquarters. All the financing can happen over there and the rest of us can like go about our regular jobs. People would be like, that's insane. You'd be in prison in no time. Like, of course, because every one of us has an intuitive understanding of what corporate functions are for. Right, you simultaneously need a way for people who are specialists in that function okay. to have a career path to, you know, if you're a finance professional, to grow up and eventually become the CFO. And also, the functions are responsible for financial literacy across the entire company to make sure that finance considerations are baked into everything that we do: budgetary decisions, uh, you know, financial controls, FP&A, the whole thing. Same with marketing. Same with IT. Same with HR. So if you sort of cut everything aside and had a magic wand, yeah, and you. And you could just do one thing to every organization that you've ever dealt with that would reduce friction and make life better and more profitable for everybody. Just one, if, if you had the power to make that one make little change one in, in, in change. everything. Like, like, like what's the one thing? I would, so if I could pick one thing, I would change the way that CEOs hold their own staff accountable Ooh. for these kinds of outcomes. Because most CEOs are very happy for other people in the organization to change their behavior. But the, the, like, accountability is the foundation of management. So the uh, way you hold people accountable is ultimately what determines what culture you're going to have, what kind of process you can, uh, you can achieve in a company. And if you have the CEO set the tone from the start, from the very top, that I'm going to treat my staff to yeah. be re responsible for portfolio thinking and have them report to me uh, how their portfolio breaks down against, you know, from low risk to high risk. If, you, if that's just a requirement for mm -hmm. being on my team, then that's going to be a requirement for being on their teams and that's going to cascade right. down. Imagine, just visualize for me, imagine you had the true God's eye view of a modern company. <laughs> And you're like, you really, like, you could see each silo from way up on high, and they're like literally like grain silos, like picture like a giant. Like, so this, you actually had complete information, which no right, executive you know exactly ever see, can have. You could see yeah. everything. You see the design function, uh, design silo, yeah. the engineering silo, you know, the marketing silo, all the silos. And anytime you wanted, you could like pop the top off one of those silos like a Pringles can and just like zoom in and be like, oh, okay. look. Hey, I see the designer doing this highly iterative design right. thing. It is amazing. Ooh, pop off the end. Oh, look at these agile developers doing this highly iterative, amazing thing. Imagine like you pop off the manufacturing. Oh, this is lean manufacturing. Yeah. It's so iterative and and uh, oh, look in the in the in debt what they call DevOps in uh, in software deployment. Mm. Look, that thing is so agile. Like, so like this must be an incredibly iterative, scientific, and customer centric company. Yeah. But zoom out again. How does work pass from silo to silo? So it's the handoff problem and it's the language problem. Right. In every silo, we pass work product to the next silo in a totally linear waterfall way, even though individually each silo is how okay, we iterate so, it. And now, yes, yes. now you're the CEO of this company and you meet with your, you know, you have right. your weekly one-on-one -on -one with it. I, I talk to CEOs and I'm like, how frequently does this happen? Is it at least once a month or once a quarter? Uh -huh. Every single one of your functional VPs will come into your office and say, you know, boss, you know what would really make this company work a lot better? If you put my function in charge of all the other functions and you made them all learn my method. That's right. Everybody does everyone design does thinking. Everybody, everybody, everyone everybody, does design yep, thinking. Yep. We're tribes. You're not going to put that tribe in front of my tribe. And the language that we use is not 
applicable across the board. You ever try to get designers to do a burn down chart? Cannot be done. Okay, so you, so you, you laid out what, yeah, what, so the solution so what the hell is, do you do about it? So, so two so, yeah. things are required to solve. First, you have to build an organizational system that is built to learn, not linear. So you have to build the, the culture of iteration and customer centricity, scientific decision-making has to be an enterprise-wide function, not a siloed thing. And the second thing you need is your, to your question about language. You have to create a conceptual vocabulary, including the most important thing, the unit of progress, mm-hmm. that is something that everyone in the organization get bought into. And if you look at how organizations are organized, the only possible language mm-hmm. that can be used there is financial. It has, you have to be able to talk about the that's financial really impact of everything. No other, that, that's the oxygen that companies consume to be, uh, not even companies, organizations, nonprofits, governments. Like it has to be in financial terms. So, so even you, for nonprofits, you think this even works? Even for nonprofits, where, like, how do you make payroll? If you can't make payroll, you don't have a nonprofit anymore. It's, if you just admit that your fa- that your funders are your customers, okay, okay, as well as these, like, like then it's actually very simple. The, the model still works, and it's again, it's not to value financial impact as the only kind of impact that matters. Mm-hmm. It's to be able to quantify how the work that you do translates into financial terms, right? So like if you, if you are producing outcomes at a nonprofit that funders won't pay for then they might be the greatest outcomes in the world, but you, you can't produce them anymore. Like, you will die. So, so impact can still be our North Star, our true, like, we can still have a purpose, a mission-driven company, but we have to be able to quantify the impact that we have in the projects that we do. And that requires a non, you need a, a lingo and a set of concepts that are not derived from any one function's thing. So you're telling me that those damn bean counters who drive me crazy, that I actually um, need them and, and have to respect their language more? Yes. I really want to zoom in on the silo part yeah, yeah, yeah. Beca- because that, at least got for a, a huge lot, source of friction. Uh, uh, so, so, and yeah. I'm actually you didn't do. I just was with a group last week, and and these two people were fighting. I was in the room with them. They were fighting so much they weren't on speaking terms. Yeah. Oh, that's very common. The first step towards incubating this new culture is you uh, have to pilot it. You have to actually give people the lived experience. So I'll give you an example. You, since you mentioned people who, who hate each other and wouldn't speak to each other. Okay. <laughs> I was working with a, a, a biosciences company uh, that was building a new uh, high-tech healthcare gizmo. Okay. And it was all engineers and uh, product people and, like, scientists on this mm-hmm. team. And so their, like, nemesis mm-hmm. was this guy in the compliance department who they viewed it. They called him the troll. Like, whatever troll, we yeah. want to do, he hates our guts. He only ever, all he does ever say no. So whatever, and they're like, we can't innovate in this company. We can't ship anything. We can't do anything because he always says no. I said, well, remember I said about ports of working across functional team? They're like, yeah, we are cross functional. We got engineering and uh-huh. we got science and product. We got this kind of science and that kind of science. And we got software and hardware. Uh-huh. I was like, okay, but cross functional means all the functions necessary to produce this product is not legal compliance. One of your essential functions. And they're like, you want us to put someone on our team from that department? I was like, yeah. Uh. Fine. So they put an official request on our expense to uh-huh. have someone transfer. Guess who gets transferred? Of course, the compliance department puts the troll eh? on their team. And they were looking at me like, you were supposed to be our coach. You were supposed to help us. And now you've got like you put the Viper in my day. And I was like, listen, do me a favor. Come out to San Francisco. We'll do a workshop. Bring the guy. We'll have a whole day together. Okay. So they come out to San Francisco. We got the beanbag chairs, the whole thing. You can imagine the troll is not. So yeah. excited yes. to have been asked to do this workshop. And this whole, this is not like the greatest day of his life. So this workshop, he is like giving me the death stare the whole mm-hmm. time, not saying one word. And finally, after several hours of workshop, he's like, okay, I have a question. Please. Are you telling me 
that I'm going to get to be involved in this team, like the ridiculous experiments they're always coming up with and foisting on me in the 11th hour. You're telling me I'm going to get to be involved in the design of those experiments from the very beginning? Uh-huh. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, interesting. Okay. Goes back to death stare. Okay. Anyway, go to my workshop, workshop, workshop. Breakout time. Okay, all the teams, everyone have a breakout. Get my team together, and they're starting to brainstorm different uh-huh. experiments they do. And, and one of the teams said, uh, they're like, oh, it's an amazing idea that they're going to pre-sell this device to only three hospitals, and it's going to be to get this experimental data from the hospital. And one of the team members says, oh, shoot, we can't do that. Mm-hmm. Why not? Oh, everybody knows you can't pre-sell a medical device before it gets FDA approval. Mm-hmm. So that, never mind. Can't do uh-huh. that. And they're about to move on. And the troll's like, excuse me, pardon me. Does it strike any of you as the kind of thing that the United States federal government would do to put out a rule or a law mm-hmm. that's one sentence long? And they're like, oh, now that you mention it. He's like, so have any of you actually read the relevant FDA guidance document for the really blah, 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 blah. They're like, no. He's like, well, guess what? I have. It's my job. And did you know that it's 900 pages long? And on page 350, <laughs> sub bullet C, sub clause seven, you know, uh, footnotes uh, two, uh, uh, that there's an exception to that rule. And in fact, the MVP you just described is legal. There you go. Whole team, like a full minute of silence as I ever wants to pick their jaws off the floor because now he's being helpful. And I'll never forget one of the engineers said, are there any other exceptions? <laughs> And he's like, step into my office, my friends. In fact, there are seven different exceptions. Did you know you could design? And like off to the races. And all of a sudden, this guy, after the workshop, they're like, what did you put in the water to trick him into being helpful? And I was like, I didn't do anything. All we did was change his context. I really care a lot about the next generation of companies. Can, uh, we, can we help them have a better blueprint that they build to uh, so that they don't recreate these problems in the first place? Like that's- So, so that's, 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 that's blueprint, sti- that's what I want to talk that about. blueprint is be, so important. Be, be, because, be, be, so, I'll give me, so I'll give you an example. I was working uh, at GE mm-hmm. on a project to, uh, to build a new gas turbine in a new uh-huh. way. And we were, I was sitting with a room full of engineers and marketers and I got the whole team together. We're doing a lean startup workshop over the course of three days. Over the course of three days, we agreed to dramatically change the cycle time mm-hmm. to get the first product to market. We co-develop much of the product with an individual customer. It was just like a way better plan uh-huh. in every way than the previous plan, which was going to take like $30 million in five years. Now we're going to take you know much less than that. In uh-huh. 18 months, we're going to be in product market so much sooner. We're going to get feedback from customers. At the end of the workshop, I said, okay, so we're going to present this new plan to our executive team uh-huh. as the plan. They said, of course we're not. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry. How not we just work for, for days? We've been laboring for days uh-huh. to make this way better plan. Why aren't we going to – isn't it better? And like, oh, it's way better. For uh-huh. sure. It's better. I was like, it's, it's better economically, better, better uh-huh. engineering. T- and like and the, every attribute I could name, they're like, yes, definitely uh-huh. better in every conceivable way. I'm like, so we're going to do this, right? And they're like, no, this is just an exercise. We're really? Not, we're not going to do it. I said, well, why not? They said, well, EMS. And I was like, I'm sorry, who's EMS? Like, what is that? They're like, they looked at me like I was like, what's uh-huh. gravity? They're like, uh-huh. EMS, GE's legendary employee management system. And I'm like, what does that what have to do that? with it? Like, what does that have to do with anything we're talking about here? You're telling me that some HR thing is uh-huh. going to, and they're like, yeah. And I'm like, but as a shareholder, I'm a GE shareholder. Right, right. Isn't this better? Isn't the purpose of a corporation, as you understand yeah. it, to great shareholder value. And they're like, uh-huh, yeah, oh, for sure. So like, wouldn't the shareholders, they were in this room with us right now, wouldn't they really want you to do this new uh-huh. thing? And they're like, definitely, of course. They're like, yes, so glad you understand. I'm like, okay, so we're going to do it. And they're like, didn't I just say no? Of course we're not going to do it. Like, I, I, I could understand what's happening. So someone finally graciously takes me out of the room. Uh-huh. Like, let me explain to you what's going on. Every engineer in this company has a personal OKR uh-huh. in the 
in the database of the employee management system that says how much rework they cause in a given uh-huh. year. That's part of their engineering functional wow. evaluation. If you do set-based concurrent engineering, there'll be definitely be more rework. And I was like, oh, got it. Okay, now I can fix the problem. I go back in the room. Engineers, I now understand that we're going to have more rework and you don't want mm-hmm. that for your careers. Can someone quantify for me the amount of rework we're talking about? Mm-hmm. And I said, no problem. It's engineered. Like a highly precise estimate of like blah, 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 blah. This could be a million dollars of extra rework. And I'm like, but isn't this like a $50 million program? Uh-huh. And isn't that right? And everyone's like, yeah. So like, isn't this a great trade? Just like, let's embrace the rework for the sake of improved product. And they're like, no, of course we're not going to do that. And, and eventually someone's like, you idiot. People want to be promoted, right? Like they're not authorized to unilaterally violate this system. And I remember sitting there, I was like, uh-huh. oh, this is no problem. Who do I talk to uh-huh. to get an exception made? Uh-huh. And it was literally as if I'd been like, who do I talk to to get an exception made uh-huh. to gravity? They're like, you don't, you don't make exceptions. To, like they, they just they couldn't understand. What, so, so that was like, it was such a good lesson for me about a concept I call career equity. The true way that, that individuals in any organizational context are compensated is not with their current cash bonus, whatever uh-huh. incentive plan you think they have. Uh-huh. It, that is generally dwarfed by their perception of future advancement opportunities. Yeah. Like some, you, go, you put up a poster that says, hey, everyone be more innovative. And they say, I'm going to pay anyone who innovates a $10,000 cash uh-huh. bonus. That's actually insulting. You're saying to me, I should risk being perceived as a failure by my peers, Uh which over the course of my 10, 20, 30-year career with this company is going to mean millions of dollars in lost earnings. And more importantly, way lower probability of me getting that dream job that I've always wanted to have in exchange for this paltry bonus, F you. But in in a lot of the big companies that I work with and have studied that are innovative, that have uh, management systems much as you talk about, what happens is there's the official system but then there's two things that happens. One is, uh, in one company, they call the submarine projects. These are projects where you go beneath the surface. Yep. You don't tell anyone what you're doing. And sometimes you even lie to your boss or you have a boss who lies. Who lies for you. That's who one of the most prized you. attributes of a good boss. Of a good boss. So, so, so that's, their, that's one. And the other model, I, c- I can use the, the example of Steelcase. Uh, I spent a, a few days wandering around Steelcase at one point uh-huh. about a, a decade and a half ago trying to understand their stage gate system. Oh, sure, stage and, gate. Uh, and um, it was explained to me that if something was really important, it didn't have to go through the stage gate. Right. If the CEO really wanted it, so, so, so of course so, so, you so, have to have that exception. So, so those are friction. Yeah. Those are both systems for removing, yeah, or, or solutions for removing the systems, and both of them are are ignoring the existing system. I wish I, I was creative enough to have made this up. I was literally, this is a true story. I was sitting in the office of a Six Sigma functional leader for uh-huh. a manufacturing company. And his job is to make sure that there's no defects on the factory floor. He has a very- Which, uh, which makes sense on very, the factory very floor. Very important yes, job yes. in the company. But of course, Six Sigma claims not just to be a manufacturing methodology, but a general purpose management philosophy. So his job is to make sure that everything the company does has Six Sigma levels of precision. And he had on his desk an item which made it impossible for me to focus in the meeting. And I was really having a hard time uh-huh. paying attention to him because he had a mug, an actual coffee mug on his desk. And it said, failure is not an option printed on <laughs> this like mug. like Apollo 13. Type. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, failure is not an option. And I was sitting there being like, wow, 
what, like, what an amazing reality it must be to live in that you think that's something you can put on a mug and proudly yeah. display, right? Because that the, the underlying assumption of owning that mug is that you believe that failure is always preventable through diligent preparation, uh-huh. always. And I would sit there being like the entrepreneurs that I admire and you know, our uh-huh. tribe, what would our mug say? I was like, if we had our own <laughs> mug, what would it be? It would be, I eat failure for breakfast. Right. So if, I, if, I, if I only fail four times by the time I get to lunch, that's actually a pretty good day on average. Like that's pretty impressive. Well, well, so so let, let's so this is actually a good friction conversation because yeah. I, I what remind early in my career, I wrote a book called Weird Ideas That Work, and I went down to a Disney a Disney Imagineering. So you know uh-huh. Disney got the parks; they run perfectly. You got yeah, Imagineering, yeah. and and I talked to some exact other executive about Disney Imagineering versus the parks, and, <laughs> and this guy looks at me and he says. Those people are idiots. <laughs> Almost everything they try fails, and everything we do works. works. What, why are they of any value at all? And and so, no, and, he, so, and, so and that that point of view from uh, the mainstream corporate is uh, correct. The fear of failure is is a very common uh, obstacle, and and it's funny. Like when I ask people, why don't you do something innovative or step? People will say, well, I'm afraid. Uh, you know, this company punishes mm-hmm. failure. And I talk to executives, they're like, I wish we punished failure more. You know, like, oh, right, like right. what are they talking about? We don't fire anybody around here, right? So there's like a, it's a get, there's, a, there's a, a, already a misperception from the different levels of what, what gets rewarded and not. Um, so we have, we can't just put a poster to say, everybody take chances and be risked and failure mm-hmm. is great. Like I'm not, a, I don't buy into the whole embrace failure, fail fast. I don't use that language as much as I can avoid it. What I think you have to do is first, you got to find people who are willing to do it even though it's irrational, yep. to pilot the new way. So you got to show this, like this, in every organization, there's certain people who like just for whatever they'll reason- they are just try new stuff even though it's nuts. Like, yeah, it, right. it is actually bad for their career equity and they, they just yeah. can't help it and yeah. they do it anyway. So you got to find those people and you start piloting programs with them to show that there is this new possibility. You have to reward them publicly to say, hey, this, this thing failed, yeah. but actually that's not that bad. And eventually you have to start to incorporate it into people's performance review. So like I, I always recommend a line in the performance review mm-hmm. matrix that's just- how many productive failures did you have this year? Okay. Someone who says they didn't fail all year long is lying to you. So, okay, first of all, that's helpful to know if someone's right. lying to you. Like, the, that's good to know. Or they were so unbelievably conservative in their work that you got to ask yourself, is this a job that I want the maximum conservativeness? And mm-hmm. there are some jobs where you're like, that's, I'm fine with that. But most Airplane jobs, pilots. yeah, you know, like, yeah, very conservative is all good. Many, many jobs, that's not what you want. And then the second thing is it forces people to be like, well, what's a productive failure? And then you're like, okay, there's actually failures due to incompetence are bad. But failures that led to some kind of useful learning, a pivot that allowed us to build a more successful product, or the most common productive failure is simply a realization that this is a bad idea. So like I was working with a team that, that asked for a million dollars to build a new product. And the company was going through a lean startup thing. They said, well, we'll give you $100,000 for an MVP instead. And they were like, the first customers they showed this concept to were just like, this is idiotically wrong in ways that you have no idea. And they're like, oh, this is not looking good. They did two or three more of those MVPs, and they were like, "Oh, our whole concept for this, like how the market works, how you get paid, but, like this is a horrible, horrible idea beyond belief." And they went back to the company. And they said, "We don't. We're gonna, we think we shut this project down." And they were about to get in trouble because finance was like, mm-hmm. "You just wasted a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars." On the stupid project, you saved and, them nine hundred thousand right. dollars. And luckily, there was another example. Like, whoa, whoa, we just saved nine hundred thousand dollars because we were willing to admit this is a bad idea. So that actually, like, you give people the experience of that, you reward that, you talk about that, you make it part of their promotion attributes. Structural and accountability systems drive culture.
Thank you very much for joining us for the Friction Podcast, Eric. Thank you so much. The admiration is mutual, so thank you. That was fun. Friction is often caused by misguided incentives. An incentive that may make sense to a leader can trickle down and create fear and stagnation. The great thing I learned from Eric is that if you're a leader, sometimes you've got to look in the mirror and realize that your favorite incentive, the one you're enamored with, is actually making people's work harder to do. Please spread the word about the Friction Podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues, your family, even your therapists. On the next episode, we'll be joined by Michael Arena, Chief Talent Officer for General Motors and author of a new book, Adaptive Space. Michael is going to talk about how large organizations can harness creativity and innovation to compete in today's market. And now for the final tangent. What do you do to set the path so that, that, that people who do entrepreneurial work can actually function with, without getting squished, abused, ruined, and driven yeah. out by the, the other, albeit necessary, functions? We have to create a corporate function that can contain that energy and create professional standards okay. and metrics of accountability. What, of so course. what are be some of the metrics that will actually allow entrepreneurs to flourish rather than get crushed? The Excel spreadsheet is still very huh. valuable huh. because it is actually a set of deductive arguments for why a specific set of customer behaviors, uh-huh. when aggregated together over time, leads to a financially valuable business impact. So you have a spreadsheet and it says what's supposed to happen. And if I found a cell in the spreadsheet that said 10% of customers are going to sign up for the free trial uh-huh. when given the opportunity. Now, that is not something that I think should be kept in two-point font in Appendix B of the business uh, plan. Right, That's right. what we call a leap of faith assumption. Right. So important to the success of the, of the business because what happens to your beautiful spreadsheet if I change a 10 to a zero? Right. Like, can you visualize the nuclear holocaust of right. zeros as they spread out across the entire, like, if customers won't sign up for the free trial, it doesn't matter what the average lifetime right. value of customers, does it matter what their retention rate, right? So that's a really important number. Now, imagine I do a minimum viable product, an experiment, mm-hmm. and only 1% of people are willing to sign up for mm-hmm. the free trial. Now, normally that would be, in corporate settings, that's like terrible news. You want right. to hide this bad news. Don't tell anybody because, oh gosh, we're way off. But in Innovation County, we actually try to see that, that as the accomplishment of a milestone. Mm-hmm. So at least now we know where we are. Knowing where okay. you are on the map gives you a chance of getting to where you want to go because now you, you're like, you're on the end zone. We're on the field. Right. We've not made it to the opponent's end zone. We have not gone 100 yards yet, but we have gone one yard, so that's uh-huh. pretty good. So the spreadsheet allows us to translate these learning metrics about individual customer behaviors into financial terms that even the most hard-nosed and skeptical finance department can take seriously, especially if they are given an opportunity to collaborate on the construction of the spreadsheet in the first place. We can't do this without you. Tell us, what's driving you crazy? And what are you doing to make life better in your organization, for yourself, and for the people that you work with? Please send us your friction stories, tips, and tricks. We'd love to hear from you via Twitter at eCorner, or please send us an email at stvp-ecorner at stanford.edu. The Friction Podcast is a Stanford eCorner original series brought to you by Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Designing Organizational Change. Friction is produced by Rachel Jilkowski and Ali Rico. 
Jake Smith and Stife Studios are our editor and audio engineers. Susie Allen and Victoria Johnson are our writing and marketing team. Danielle Stussy is our designer and digital products manager. And I'm Bob Sutton. Thanks for joining us. This is the Friction Podcast.